Great to have you back for the Corpora podcast, where I sit down with leading professionals and thinkers to talk all things startup law, entrepreneurship, and technology. Corpora is your startup's legal dashboard. We help startups and their counsel, if they have one, to take care of their legal tasks, from hiring to issuing options, fundraising, protecting IP, and more. Check us out at corpora.us. It's free to sign up. My name is Tapan Khazritsyan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Corpora, and I'm thrilled to introduce our special guest for today, a great human and a great CEO, Nare Vartanyan. I'm going to read out Nare's very impressive bio. Nare is co-founder and CEO at Entropy, building the vertical AI company for finance. Entropy is based in NYC with offices in London and Lisbon. It has raised over $40 million in venture funding and has over 20 employees across the United States and Europe. Nara was born and raised in Armenia. She's an alumnus of Yerevan State University, Department of International Relations, as well as University College London, where she studied politics, politics, and security. She participated in the UNDP Young Professionals Program in New York City. She has also been the co-founder at Mindbin, a mental health startup focused on predictive analytics for bipolar disorder, which she later exited to Mercer Group. She then joined the investment team at the Mayor of London's fund, LCIF, focusing on artificial intelligence. She has also invested in over 35 early stage applied AI companies with AI Seed in London. Nare, so great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Nare, you, you are an exceptional founder and CEO. You've done this many times over, and you've been with Entropy for a while now. But for those of our in our audience who may be unfamiliar with Entropy, could you please share what you're building? Um, sure. Um, so we started Entropy to build language models to understand financial data at scale, any format, any language, any country, any currency. Um, the world's financial data is very fragmented, um, even in the United States, which is a very developed financial services system. If you look at your statement, oftentimes you wouldn't recognize what it says, even if you have the context and you know what you've purchased. We take all of that information ac across statements, receipts, invoices, car transactions, and make it unified to be able to make decisions on it. So I've, I've looked into your, your product um, while we were preparing for this podcast, mm -hmm. and it's, it's very neat that you do. And essentially, you're translating the gibberish that we see on bank statements, like you see these acronyms and, and incomplete words and phrases in the mm -hmm. statement, you're translating that into a uh, human readable format mm -hmm. for decision making. Is that a fair understanding? Yes, yes. That's exactly what we do. And the reason we do that is because most of the back office of financial services is still run by humans and it's very expensive. If you think about compliance, know your customer, know your business, onboarding, risk, fraud. These are very expensive and human-heavy processes. And this is why financial services in general is a very expensive business. Banks survive only because of the amount of capital they have, and they have the lowest MPS. They don't often provide a good service, but it's very hard to compete with them. So if you break the back office and make mm -hmm. it cheaper and more accessible, you can have better financial services. Got it. Got it. That is fascinating. Now, let's go back to the very beginning. Mm -hmm. You, along with your co-founder, you guys started Entropy back in 2018. I want you to sort of time warp back to, what, was it five years ago when you were just starting out? And you essentially had options on how to start that company. Uh, mm -hmm. There are a multitude of uh, sort of company formation, automation companies out there. You could use one of those or you could hire a lawyer to do this. Which path did you take? Why, and looking back, was that the best decision or would you have done things differently now? 
Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, we actually spent quite a lot of time on this um, in terms of picking the country first. Where did we want to incorporate? Uh, back then, I was based full time in London. I still live in London, just travel a lot to the US and back and forth. And uh, my co-founder was there too. Um, so we had an option to incorporate with Companies House in the United Kingdom mm-hmm. um, or um, start a Delaware C Corp, which is the majority of the most successful startups in the world are um, have been started in Delaware. And we always knew we we're going to fundraise in the US. Um, so we decided that that would be the best option. Um, I also knew from experience in investing before that if you do want to go to the U.S. market from the U.K. and you do a flip, it's very expensive. It's much more expensive than starting a branch if we wanted to have a U.K. establishment. So, yes, we were like, okay, we're going to do a Delaware C Corps. We didn't have money to spend on lawyers. And um, the easiest way um, was Googling what's available. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found Stripe Atlas. Um, I remember it was fully bootstrapped and we didn't have really high paying jobs before that either. So it's not like we had a ton of savings. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a female founder program where they would even waive the, I think it was a thousand dollar fee or something to, to get started. Okay. Um, so we signed up for that and we got started via Stripe Atlas. It took a couple of minutes. They give you um, your incorporation documents and... Um, you get a bank account, um, an EIN in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's how we did that. And in the meantime, you've built a company that is about to raise its Series B round. You raised over $14 million in venture financing and all started with a corporate formation automation company such as Stripe Atlas. And looking back, um, that worked pretty fine for you. Um, yes, but we had a lot of hiccups. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's... Um, I mean, I love Stripe Atlas. I think it's a great product. It allows you to do things very quickly and um, it's, it's quite simple and um, affordable. But um, th- there were a lot of documents that we needed to um, sign and fill in, et cetera. They were there in templates. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's no lawyer that will follow up and tell you what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we missed out on a, on a few things. And I remember when we were raising um, after a pre-seed, like a proper seed round yeah. um, in 2020, um, we figured out that we actually never bought our own options. Uh, and that was that was a very expensive process of, of doing that back then. The share price had changed. The, the documents were missing. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to reach out to Stripe support to see if there were any documents that were signed. Um, obviously, this was coming from not a lot of experience or not having paid attention. Um, when you're building a company, I think the legal part of it is the last thing you want to think about. There mm-hmm. are so many other things. Uh, but yes, we had to pay for those uh, misses. Um, it's not necessarily the platform's fault, but it was more just lacking enough support um, to be able to navigate everything. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, you know, thinking about this, and this is a topic that always comes up, right? Because when you have legal tech technology, there's this bias towards standardization, like trying to templatize whatever can be templatized. And it seems like it sacrifices the human touch as mm-hmm. a result. But law can never be fully standardized. It can never be fully templatized. But on the opposite side, you don't want a situation where you have to talk with a lawyer for everything or or rather involve the lawyer for everything. So I think the balance is key here. Like it has to be somewhere in the middle where you can rely on legal tech to get a lot of stuff done. But that five-minute check-in with a lawyer or having that strategic guidance by a lawyer, uh, just like you implied just mm-hmm. now, can can go a long way in terms of uh, keeping you from a headache and possibly a big bill down the line. 
Yes, for sure. And I and I think context is king, right? You you almost want templates that would understand context and your mm-hmm. specific context and then would solve the problem for you. That's what a lawyer does. They hear you out, they ask a few questions, and then they have a solution. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we've been missing in the templates because, yes, it's a bunch of documents that are the same for every single case, yet your case is slightly different. And then that can create a lot of headache and costs down the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you just gave the definition of the practice of law, which is essentially <laughs> applying um, uh, the law to the facts or the context, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. which is which is important. So uh, as, as I understand it, you didn't work with a lawyer from day one with the repercussions there too. When was it, what was that trigger that sort of hinted or implied that, okay, now we have to hire a lawyer. We can't continue on like this. Um, when we were raising our seed round, mm-hmm. um, things got serious. We had a um, big venture fund interested and, and we knew that we need to raise a lawyer to do, get a lawyer to do the round. Mm-hmm. Um, we engaged with um, quite a well-known law firm um, that was doing deals internationally as well. And um, yeah, so that's that's how the process got started. And it should have been a very straightforward, I mean, a seed round is a straightforward raise, but mm-hmm. um, we had a, a few things that we needed to clean up from, um, you know, not having a lawyer from before. Um, mm-hmm. So that took some time, but in the end we got there. Mm-hmm. And this was how many years after founding? If, you, um, if you're okay with sharing that. Yeah, so this this was 2020, um, end of 2020, 2021. Um, so we started the company in 2018. Frankly, um, we did not really know what we were going to build. Uh, we had this general idea about a data platform to train better machine learning models. And um, the goal was to get interesting data to be able to do that. And we thought, well, healthcare is interesting, finance is interesting. So we had variations and multiple pivots on how to, you know, what to do and how to do and what to build. Um, it was bootstrapped and then we raised a pre-seed where, again, we didn't really engage any lawyers. It was just done on safes. Mm-hmm. So when we were raising our proper seed round, um, two and a half, three years later, mm-hmm. it was... Um, we had a, a bunch of saves and uh, things that piled up and all these documents. So we needed to clean it all up to do things um, like they should have been done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this one line which regularly comes up while I worked with startup, startup, excuse me, uh, startups as a startup lawyer, mm-hmm. but also now as a build technology for startups, it's keeping your house in order. Mm-hmm. It's like making sure that all your T's are crossed, I's are dotted, and especially avoiding the irreversible mistakes mm-hmm. or the mistakes that can be reversed but it's going to be costly to reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, before hiring that lawyer for the Series C round, how did you take care of your legal tasks? Was it like talking with people who had done it before, Google search, templates, other technology? What was your approach? Yeah, we, we used a variety of these platforms that had um, ready-made templates and, mm-hmm. and things uh, from like contracts to, you know, whenever we needed something, it was, we would just get something from the internet and then adapt it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it, it's getting more um, popular to talk about this regarding finance. You know, when you're starting a company, you do your first financial model and you you, you need to have an understanding of how things work because mm-hmm. that's a part of your story. I think it's less so in terms of legal, but it needs to be. Um, like that more because a lot of the times you're very blind in what you're doing. If you don't have a legal background, um, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have a very good understanding. Even um, 
thinking about shares and how you do vesting between you and your co-founders, et cetera, or employment contracts and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. we just used whatever was out there um, and uh, different templates, and that was it. Is it fair to say, when you, when you say the founders are blind, is it fair to say that you would prefer to have some kind of roadmap, like a playbook to follow as you take this step by step? Um, I would I would want to understand more yeah. um, of what was actually happening. You know, um, it's not necessarily being all too familiar with all the legal terms mm-hmm. and so on, but just having a better understanding, um, vesting schedules, cliffs, you know, all of this mm-hmm. special jargon that you get to learn because you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to educate yourself and spend some time on it because um, if you don't, then uh, there's a lot of situations when those things pop up and um, it can be quite tough to navigate and there's consequences, obviously. Mm-hmm. Even like term sheets, right? Um what happens is when you get a term sheet, the first thing you do, you run it by your lawyers and uh, they will, you know, there's lawyers who will fight for every single word and uh, they have a very profounder position. There's lawyers who would just do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, you just want to make decisions on your own, you know, negotiating what to give, where to, you know. Um, insist on what needs to happen. You, mm-hmm. you need to know things. And I don't think there's enough knowledge. Uh, majority of founders, they learn this as they go. They make the mistakes during their first startup. Um, they get kicked out from the board after. Mm-hmm. And then they come back and they already know what's up and they they make it very tight. We've you know? seen that before several <laughs> so. times. Um, not as just to make sure I follow, even if you're working with a lawyer, you're paying someone to do this for you, you as a founder and as your advice to other founders, you would suggest being educated on these topics just to know what's going on. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, I mean, you, you might have a CFO and accountant down the line, but you want to know your um, financial model and you want to understand how your business works. I think in a similar way, you want to know mm-hmm. the basics of uh, your legals. Um, it's super important. Let's talk founder pet peeves. Mm. You know, there are obviously things that lawyers do that drive founders nuts, mm. right? Yeah. Obviously, lawyers aren't the most affordable <laughs> professionals out there. Yeah. Some charge very handsome lawyerly rates. Mm. Um, but to give you an example, a founder pin peeve can be the lawyer applying their handsome hourly rate to very menial tasks that can be done by a paralegal or a non-lawyer uh, or automated altogether. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you've had the chance to sort of identify any of those pet peeves of lawyers doing things that you don't find quite yeah. amenable. I mean, we, we've had partner emails that had a hefty fee that mm-hmm. came with that were just simple yes or no answers. Or, um, But but the thing that, but from my experience, you can negotiate with lawyers. You just need to know that mostly you can, um, you know, bring the fees down if you're a startup and so on. Um, wh- what I... Um, do not like, and I've had experience with this, is when things that are simple get overcomplicated um, and uh, that takes time to resolve and those email threads and then you get the fee. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's, yeah, just not, that's a waste of founder's time, everybody's time. And uh, I've seen situations where very simple things that could be easily resolved just going back and forth in circles. Um um, that's something I, yeah, I, I hate. And, uh, we've changed, um, legal firms that we work with for this. They had a great reputation and were great professionals, but, um, they would just overcomplicate mm-hmm. every single matter. 
You know, sometimes, and I think you sort of touched upon this when you were talking about term sheets mm -hmm. where you have founders, excuse me, lawyers that are very pro-founder and fight for everything yeah. and lawyers that are more easygoing. Um, sometimes you come across a lawyer, for better or for worse, that is very academic, if I may, very mm -hmm. theoretical. And oh, yeah. Again, it comes up in negotiations, yeah. right, where they would sort of pay attention to every comma, every word, even if it's inconsequential from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it's important for your lawyer to have this business understanding and not only be a legal professional, but a, but a business partner to you as well. And it sounds like when you mentioned this pet peeve, this is what you were, your, uh, this is what you had in mind. Exactly. Exactly. Having the context for your business, for the situation, understanding the, um, again, like term sheets, they take time and that time, sometimes, you know, you're raising money when you're running out of money mm -hmm. more often, uh, than not. That's the case. So, um, every founder knows who's fundraised that until um, cash hits your bank account, you can't sleep mm -hmm. um, because anything can happen in between. It can happen pre-term sheet. It can happen post-term sheet. It can happen uh, when you're doing the long-form documents and so on and so forth. So um, as a founder, you always want to get it done as soon as possible so that cash hits your account and you can go to sleep for a few days at least. Um, and uh, the lawyer that has the context and understands and doesn't drag this is um, very valuable, mm -hmm. but also doesn't give in to things that need to be negotiated. E exactly. And as you, was, as you were recounting this, my own experience as a startup lawyer came to mind and I had a few price round flashbacks in my head <laughs> because on, on one side you have your clients, your startups, need, like they want to close, they want to close <laughs> yesterday. Yes. On the other side, you have your professional responsibilities to that same client and how you balance that is, is a matter of finesse and professionalism and really having a steady hand and a steady foot because very often there's this 11th hour change that comes up mm -hmm. and you have to figure out, do I fight this? Do I prolong the closing for another week or two? Yeah. Or this is fine. You know, I, I consult with my client, I advise my client that, you know what, this is the risk behind that change. Mm -hmm. I think it's fine. It's not ideal, but let's go ahead. So, you know, spot on with that. And like, you really have to balance those two uh, conflicting interests. Yeah, that's that's very very hard. But um, it's important for your lawyer to understand and do what's what's the best thing for the business. And it can be different depending on the case. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Now let's talk more about entropy. Mm -hmm. yeah, you're you're building groundbreaking software in the fintech vertical, fintech AI, um, and you know, two verticals out there: fintech, legal tech. Mm -hmm. They seem to be in related fields, but fintech is leaps and bounds ahead of mm. legal tech in terms of the maturity of the software, the adoption by the players mm. in the space. Why do you think this is the case? And what are some advice you can share with legal tech founders out there that would sort of help speed up the process of maturity and adoption? Um, yeah, I think it, it really, the, the software and the has been there for ages, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, Obviously, right now, we're going through a massive transformation with language models and what's possible in AI. But I would say even um, seven, eight years ago, um, there were possibilities to build amazing legal software. And there's a few startups who've tried, and it was always very hard, and uh, a lot of them have failed. Um, I think um, it's because of the business model of uh just legal professionals in general. Most of the companies who are building for law firms that charge per hour um, and have billable hours, if you're trying to automate anything there, that's not necessarily the best thing for the firm uh, because the more hours, human hours are spent on something, um, uh, 
the more money they make. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always been very, very tricky, I think, to bring automation to in there. And obviously, it's the law, so the compliance, uh, the um, interpretability of uh, tech, you know, we couldn't use models that we couldn't explain why they made certain decisions. Mm -hmm. um, that also made it harder. Um, because there's that accountability part of it that was, um, that was huge. And the data is the third thing in finance. There's been a huge push by, um, different countries, governments, regulation, private sector to open up the data mm -hmm. and allow consumer consented, business consented data to be out there for companies to innovate on. Um, if you look at the last 10 years of fintech innovation, a bunch of that has come from the accessibility of this data. Um, and uh, you have Robin Hoods that suddenly anybody can trade. This is possible because you can open an account within seconds with your consent as a consumer. Um, I don't think that has happened um, in legal tech. Um, a lot of the data is within the law firms, mm -hmm. silos, uh, or uh, companies, big corporates, or you know even startups, right? So it's very hard to get access to and train on. And uh, only recently that started to happen. Um, and models got very good at understanding, um, you know, legal documents, uh, because they are good at understanding language way better than they were even three years ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it's an interesting time. Um, if you look at vertical, uh, AI companies in the legal space, there's one or two that have just gotten started. Most of them have gone down the route. Oh, we're going to partner with the biggest law firms in the world and we're going to get all the data and then we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, it's still you know, out there. We, we don't know what's the best model. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think everyone's realizing that um, automation is coming, whether uh, they choose it or not. So that, you know, every firm in the world will start to get ready for it. Mm -hmm. I also think that we're going to end up um, in a world where hiring junior professionals who are going to want to sit and do audit or sit and go through pages and pages of documents is going to get harder and harder. People just would not want to do those jobs and you will need to have some form of automation. So maybe that will change. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's just my perspective. I'm, I'm not sure how you think about it. You obviously started a company in the space where a ton of people have failed. So yeah, no, th these are excellent insights. And, you know, hearing you talk and applying this at the legal tech space, it sounds like it's important to have this coalition, if I may, of three various vectors or three various poles, rather. You need uh, amenable government regulation. Mm -hmm. You need the service providers. In the case of fintech, it's the banks, financial institutions. In the case of legal tech, it's the law firms and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, law pro legal services providers. And uh, the owners of this data, the clients in the case of banks, clients in the yeah. case of lawyers, to work together in order to liberate the locked data, the data that is locked under confidentiality privileges, mm -hmm. the government in turn sort of thawing the regulations to sort of ease what is the practice of law and easing the ethical regulations uh, behind that. And when it comes to lawyers, maybe being more open towards that automation and uh, underlying that, of course, is the the fee structures, mm -hmm. not, not only billing by the hour, which it's probably easy to do. It makes a lot of sense, but we're going to see a move away from this towards alternative fee structures as, mm -hmm. as we go on, because in some cases, a flat fee would be more uh, reasonable or a monthly subscription would be more reasonable. But we need that tripartite coalition to happen in order mm -hmm. for legal tech adoption to really um, move forward. And I would suspect that it'll be a bottom-up 
uh, push. It'll mm-hmm. be push from clients which want the benefits of automation in terms of better accuracy, better speed, better prices, and even lawyers as well. It's sort of like a prisoner's dilemma game, if I may, mm-hmm. like a game theory uh, situation where as more and more law firms, big or boutique, take on legal tech and apply AI to their practices, there's going to be competitive pressure towards mm-hmm. the law firms that are trailing behind to catch on. Mm -hmm. And those two together working in tandem, if if not uh, sort of indirect collaboration, but just working in tandem to put that pressure on governments, we'll see a, a move forward towards liberating this data and liberating regulations and see more legal tech adoption. That's that's the insight that I gleaned from your comments in terms of legal tech. Yes, and I I think I'm super interested in how the business models are going to change. Like you mm-hmm. said, this uh, different fee structures, um, ability to do payments in different ways. Um, I would suspect if you were the first lawyer of Uber or any of the companies that are massively successful right now mm-hmm. um, and you got some delayed payment and equity instead of that, that would be a great deal um, as a firm. Uh, or you got a flat fee and some equity structure that was vesting and so on. So um, I do think services companies, um, the way they charge as we move away from humans doing hours of work, that needs to change. And what we're talking about maybe is too primitive. Maybe there'll be more beautiful models of mm-hmm. how to do this. But um, I think that's where the innovation is going to come from. And for that to happen, um, you yes, you need the founders to start not using their lawyer as often. And then um, the lawyers getting less emails, they can bill less anyway, so they have to adopt technology too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do agree it, the market you know movement will be bottom up rather than top down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Moving further into how legal is accessed, Mm -hmm. if you had a magic wand Mm -hmm. and you could change one thing in the way startups access legal services and the way law firms deliver those legal services, what would it be? Um, That's... (laughs) You mentioned less emails, for example. Um, I think... Every time, um, again, we're talking about context and, and I think about it in terms of enterprise a lot in general. I think um, communication overload is everywhere and it's very, very costly. Um, every time there is a situation, if you have, um, if you don't have internal legal department and um, you're talking with outside counsel, um, you have to give a very detailed overview of the situation. Sometimes you're missing details, then you have to have a trail of documents, processes, and so on. And once they get this context, then they can make some decisions or give you advice. Um, That process takes time. Um, It's not super efficient. Um, I would want to change that. If if there was a way of my lawyer um, getting, you know, even simple things like context on everything immediately and the lowdown and almost like, Imagine um, having an agent that reads your code base, having a mm-hmm. lawyer that actually understands the legal setup of everything you have, and then they can advise you without you necessarily having to go through this chains of emails and answering loads of the same questions oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be great. That would save um, a lot of energy and uh, would be so much more efficient. And I think that's where the future lies. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at how startups and companies generally have access legal over the past years, if not decades, it's been very choppy. 
if mm-hmm. I may, right? With every given legal engagement, you involve your lawyer, they come up to speed on in terms of what's going on, you answer their questions, and then they uh, give you some information, you ask questions on those inf- on that information, they come up with a draft document, it's very back and forth, very, mm-hmm. a lot of friction involved, especially with that email correspondence. Mm-hmm. Moving away from that to what you just mentioned, your lawyer having visibility and clarity in terms of what is going on in your startup, having mm-hmm. sort of receptors in the company, in the legal context of the company, mm-hmm. being privy to what's going on, and they themselves proactively reaching out to you and saying, you know what, for that, I think I should check in for five minutes, make sure everything is fine. For this other more complex strategic matter, I should be more involved. Obviating the need for you to reach out to them in the first place. Mm -hmm. They'll be more proactive in terms of how involved they should be and being only as involved as necessary. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the future of of, uh, accessing legal. Yes, I think that that would be perfect. You um, almost want them to know what's missing or, you know, what can go wrong before something happens, right? Because Mm -hmm. that would save you from problems and you could fix issues before they happen. But for that, they need to have context and understanding of what's happening. And the company. So we're living in phenomenal times. Mm-hmm. You know, artificial intelligence, the solidarity, maybe uh, singularity, rather, maybe mm-hmm. near. Mm-hmm. So is AGL possibly? Mm-hmm. What kind of world awaits us, Nare? What is your vision of the world, and in terms of AI, and what role will entropy play in that world? And we can think five years from now, so not so distant future. What are your thoughts? Um, I'm super optimistic about everything that's happening. Um, I think the the pace of uh, how this is going to evolve is only go- going to accelerate just because of um, if you look at these models, the way they've been trained, it's so simple. They've just taken all of the internet and, and they're trying to predict the next word and they're already so good by being so simple. Um, what if they had a full understanding, semantic meaning of things? What if they could have a model of the world that they actually understood I think all of these things will come and uh, it would be fascinating how everything evolves from there. Um, but um, I, you know, sometimes I think about AI threat and I read a lot about it and a, a lot of very smart people talk about it. And um, and then you look back at the world that we live in today um, and there's so much human threat. I was um, thinking about this, especially in the last couple of weeks as we saw what was happening in Armenia back mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, people are concerned about AI taking over and human race ending and uh, killing us, murdering us. Um, um, on the other hand, real people are murdering other people and taking their homes and making them leave where they are. Um, and uh, these are very different realities. It's almost like parallel, right? Mm-hmm. Um People in Armenia or our compatriots or people we went to university with are yes. now were worried uh, and couldn't stay where they were born and raised because of the threat of war and uh, genocide, and they had to escape. Um, and then here we're worried about you know AI taking over our lives and <laughs> and and something bad happening. So that's crazy to think about. Um, I think in that context, the most important thing I'm. Not so scared of the machines yet, just because they're they're very simple and we kind of understand how they work. And I don't think GPT-4 or even 6 is going to be very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is scary is having um, not equal access to those models and intelligence. So if certain countries have access to 
that intelligence than others don't. If certain parts of the population have access to that type of intelligence and others don't, that that becomes suddenly a very different world, way more um, hierarchical. Um, and uh, I think there needs to be more effort in making sure this is not the case. What we're trying to do at Entropy is a tiny um, effort in, in that global picture, but we really want to make financial intelligence cheap and accessible wherever, whether it's Brazil, Portugal, Mexico, um, you know, even the Middle East where there's very heavy data regulations because if you don't do this, you will have this world of, um, yeah, extreme hierarchy. People mm-hmm. making decisions and other people not even realizing how they're governed. Uh, probably some people would already say that that's happening today, but I think we still have some, you know, freedom of choice and uh, we might lose it if, if this doesn't get l- resolved. Um, mm-hmm. The open source effort is very important there and maybe there will be some other solutions, just more companies having access and building this stuff so it's not one or two. Mm-hmm. We definitely have a much more fundamental issue to tackle right now <laughs> in terms of, as you mentioned, actual humans weaponizing tools yeah. to commit ethnic cleansing in the 21st century and uh, international organizations falling definitely, deafeningly silent in, in the midst of all that. So the challenge then becomes how do we keep those same humans from weaponizing artificial intelligence, exactly. which becomes a much more realistic danger if we have that hierarchy, that unequal division of access to these models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that can be potentially very dangerous. And, um, you know, GPUs are expensive. And um, at some point, having access to GPUs is going to be as important as having oil, if not more important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think you either need to make them cheaper um, so that they're accessible um, to more uh, people around the world, um, or there needs to be alternative ways of building intelligence. Um, Otherwise, yeah, it's 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 going to be terrifying. Um, we saw what what happened with you know oil becoming and electricity becoming mm-hmm. a dominant force, and now this is the next uh, level of that. Nada, thank you so much for sharing these brilliant insights with our audience. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Nada Bartanyan, co-founder and CEO at Entropy. Thank you for watching, and Nada, thank you so much again. Thank you. 